remain standing for our Old Testament lesson, our sermon text from Isaiah 7. I'm going to give you a little bit of, of background here, what's going on. This passage is about King Ahaz, and King Ahaz is in a crisis. He's got two nations coming against him, and God tells him that he can pray his way out of this. Ask for a sign. Ask me to do something, and Ahaz rejects the offer. He rebuffs God, and then God judges him. So listen carefully to God's word from Isaiah 7. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Joshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come 
and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorns and in all pastures. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, so it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns with arrows and bows. Men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen. And a place for sheep to roam. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. For its word of judgment. But also its word. Especially for its word of promise. And gospel. During this time that we meditate on your word God. Work in our hearts. So that we fear you. And love you. And trust in you alone. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. This week, next week, and the following week, I'm going to do a three-part series on Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. So today we're tackling Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, 1 through halfway or so through chapter 9 is one section of Scripture that points to, prophesies about the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. So today and then the two Sundays and Christmas, we'll cover those, and then we'll get back into John in the new year. One of life's biggest questions is, in what are you trusting? What are you trusting in? What's the true source of your confidence your confidence about life, about the future. When you throw out your anchors, do they make it down to the bottom? Do they hit ground? Do they land on solid ground? Is your ship moored? Or does your ship only stay put as long as there's no turbulent weather? You can more or less keep it put. Where does your trust land? Where does it find rest? Now, on most days, we could say most years, this sort of question never really comes up. And even in 2020, we can, we can keep this question at bay without too much effort. We live day in, day out in our comfortable bubbles, and more often than not, we're able to handle whatever comes our way. Most of the time we're doing what we've done many times before. And so we don't ask, what am I trusting in when we are buttering our bagels, as we tend to our phones, as we interact with coworkers, as we respond to emails, we cook supper, as we listen to music, as we listen to podcasts, as we do our jobs, as we lie down to go to sleep, or 
as we wake up the next morning to do it all again. We may even forget to ask this all-important question as we come in on the Lord's Day to worship the living God with his people. Most of our daily and weekly activities and routines are so ordinary, so routine, that we assume we can do them ourselves in our own strength. We, we can do them without feeling any real need to trust, to rely on something or someone outside of ourselves. But this is a grave misconception of the truth. It's a grave misconception of reality. Every moment of every day, you're trusting in something with all your heart. If you're confident you can handle the situation yourself, then you are trusting in yourself. And that's the most devastating state you can be in spiritually. And there are a lot of ways that you can go about trusting in yourself. You may be trusting your high IQ or your diligent preparation or your ability to lead people or work with people, guide people, to win friends and influence people. Maybe your skill in running a business or your financial success. People put their trust in all kinds of things their musical talent, their athletic abilities, their family ties, their retirement portfolio, their theological system, their nation's military prowess. People even put their faith, their trust in their favorite presidential candidate. And here's the thing. What you're trusting in is most clearly revealed during a crisis. Let me say that again. What you're trusting in is most clearly revealed in a crisis, during a crisis. One of you sent me a quote this week along these lines. It said, Conflict doesn't create character. It reveals it. People are who they are, and we only find out what they are made of when they're tested to their limit, end quote. How true that is, how true that is all the time, how true it's been in 2020. Conflict doesn't create character, it reveals it. People are who they are, and we only find out what they're made of when they're tested to their limit. What you're trusting in is most clearly revealed during a crisis. And to demonstrate this, God brings us trials. He brings us circumstances that pop our bubbles, that jerk us out of our comfort zones. He does it all the time to all of us in various ways for our good and for our growth. Sometimes God, God even brings extreme suffering or difficulty so that we are forced to lose all the things that we are finding satisfaction in more than we are finding satisfaction in God. What you're finding satisfaction in is what you're trusting in. Crises have a way of revealing your faith and your fears. They, they, they show you where your fear and your faith lie. So what do you fear? What do you have faith in? 
What are you trusting? The message of Isaiah 7 is stop trusting in yourself and stop trusting in everything that is not God. Everything and everyone that is not God. Throw yourself on God alone. Throw yourself on God wholly. Rest in Him alone. Find satisfaction in Him alone. In the Old Testament, God often taught His people vital spiritual lessons through political and military crises. The historical context of Isaiah 7 is just such a crisis. King Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And most of Judah's kings were evil, so was Ahaz. That was the kingdom that had some righteous ones too, though, but not Ahaz. He reigned over Judah during the 700s B.C. So the prophecy here in Isaiah 7 takes place in about 735 B.C. In 735 B.C., King Ahaz found himself in a predicament. And it's described for us in verses 1 through 9 of Isaiah 7. And verse 1 says that the northern kingdom of Israel had teamed up with Syria. And these two nations were planning to invade, take over Judah in the south. So if, if you were to look at a map, Syria would be up here. And then the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah are stacked up on one another. And, and each nation is, is more or less the same size. Syria is on top, and then the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, it's important, you may be wondering, so what do you mean two kingdoms in Israel? But you recall that in the 900s, a couple hundred years earlier, right, before, right after the reign of Solomon, Israel had split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. So the north is called Israel, the south is called Judah. So Judah and Israel and Syria were three tiny kingdoms among several other small nations in this region. Nations like Edom and Ammon and Moab and Philistia. And all of these little countries were just bit players on the stage of geopolitics. And they were often dominated by larger kingdoms or or empires such as the Babylonians and the Assyrians who imposed themselves on entire regions with their military power. Well, in 735 BC, Assyria was was the empire. And the Assyrians were violent. They were ruthless. Their emperor, tiglath Pileser III was a greedy expansionist who, who ultimately wanted to expand down into Egypt, where, which was the world's breadbasket. But in order to get down to Egypt, first Tiglath Pileser III had to gain control of the six or eight kingdoms in Palestine, including Syria and Israel and Judah. And sometimes these smaller kingdoms would get together and gang up on other small kingdoms and threaten them with conquest. 
And that's exactly the kind of threat that King Ahaz and Judah were facing. Syria and Israel in the north had become allies for the purpose of conquering Judah and setting up their own king. So Syria and Israel were waging war against the cities of Judah, and their goal was to take Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. Isaiah 7.1 says that Syria's king, Rezin, and Israel's king, Pekah, came to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But so far, that that verse says, so far in the war, Syria and Israel were unsuccessful. However, Judah's military was in tatters. They wouldn't be able to hold off the enemy forever. God brought this crisis upon Ahaz to reveal to him the emptiness of his soul and to show him his need to put his faith in God. Ahaz thought he knew God, but he was actually an unbeliever. The king of Judah, the king in the line of David, did not know God. The plan of Syria and Israel was pretty straightforward. Put an end to the Davidic dynasty in Judah and install their own puppet king, who's referred to in verse 6 as the son of Tabel. The trembling hearts of Ahaz and all of Judah reveal their weakness of faith. Verse 2 says they were shaking like trees. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. So why are they so afraid? They're shaking with fear because they haven't put their trust in God. They're shaking with fear because they don't fear God. God had promised to get them out of this jam. But Ahaz doesn't have the faith to take God at his word. In verse 3, the Lord tells Isaiah to go to meet Ahaz. And then in verse 4, the Lord tells Isaiah to reassure Ahaz with these words. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoking firebrands. Do not fear or be faint-hearted because of the fierce anger of King Rezin and Syria. Calm down and be quiet, the Lord says. This is how Jesus commanded the wind and the waves in Mark 4. And then after that, he rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith in that moment. Notice in verse 4, Isaiah 7, 4, how the Lord calls Syria and Israel these two stubs of smoking firebrands. God knows about the plot of these two kings to conquer Judah put an end to the line of David. And he promises King Ahaz that they won't succeed. The Lord's will for King Ahaz in this moment is that he stop fretting about these two invading nations from the north. Ahaz, what are you worried about? Why are you worrying about these two smoldering stumps? Don't you, don't you know, don't you believe that I can and will protect you if you put your trust in me? If you ask me to help you, if you come to me in prayer. In verses 5 to 9, Isaiah goes on to reassure King Ahaz that Syria and Israel will not invade Judah. Even though Ahaz is not seeking the Lord, God will still show him mercy. 
they will not tear Judah apart and divide it among themselves. The threats and intentions of Syria and Israel will not stand. It's a promise. You see, God speaks a simple and sovereign word of promise into this situation, into this crisis. It won't happen. Their plans won't won't succeed. And that should have been the end of the matter for King Ahaz. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah 40 verse 15 says that the nations are small specks of dust on the scales. So, so you imagine a set of scales and, and there's dust on one side which doesn't really affect it. The nations are dust on the scales but God is a, a bowling ball or a boulder or even greater. Whichever side he lands on is the way the scales will tip every time. When God says it'll happen, it'll happen. When God says it won't happen, it won't happen. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God had planned to bring the Savior into the world through the house of David. And these two little kings were not going to be able to thwart God's plan of salvation. God is not a passive onlooker. He doesn't stand on the sidelines of human history rooting for the best outcome. No, he brings about the best outcome, the outcome that he wants. He sovereignly decides what will happen on the stage of world history at every level. As one author put it, God moves his little finger and the nations convulse. Look at what God says in verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. And in verse 8, God predicts that within 65 years, Israel, which is referred to as Ephraim in this passage, Israel will not even be a people anymore. 65 years, that's... That's no time at all to God. For God, a thousand years are like a day. And so 65 years is not even a couple of hours to God. And the point is that Israel will be destroyed. They will cease to be a people very soon. Israel and Syria are two little nations led by two little men. And, and what are they to the Lord God Almighty? In the second half of verse 9, the Lord warns Ahaz, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. I I like the ESV's translation. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Trust me, Ahaz, and I'll get you through this crisis with Syria and Israel. It's, it's, It's no big deal for me. King Ahaz and the rest of Judah will have an opportunity. God has given them an opportunity to repent, to hold fast to God, for them to put their faith firmly in God. People of God, if if your faith in God is not firm, if you don't have a firm faith in God, then nothing in your life is firm. 
no matter what you tell yourself or how it might feel in some days. Nothing in your life is firm. You have no foundation. You are at sea. You can't be strong and stable and grounded and satisfied if your faith in Christ is weak and unstable and ungrounded and unsatisfying. Habakkuk 2.4 says, The righteous person will live by faith, by his faith. Ahaz's faith is not firm. The man who was supposed to be the leader of God's people, the example of righteousness for God's people, does not have a firm faith. And God knows Ahaz's scheme for self-salvation. He knows, he knows that Ahaz is seeking Assyria's sovereign protection instead of God's. He's asking Assyria, Assyria with an A, to help him against Syria with no A and Israel, these two firebrands. So what's God do? What's God do when Ahaz is hard-hearted? How's he respond? He extends patience and mercy to Ahaz yet again. In verses 10 and 11, God tells Ahaz to ask for a miraculous sign. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Let your request be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, which means make it miraculous. So do you see how gracious and long-suffering the Lord is being with King Ahaz? Instead of condemning him for his lack of faith, the Lord offers Ahaz a sign, a sign of his own choosing. You pick, Ahaz. Ask me a sign. Make Make it deep or high. In other words, ask for whatever you need. Make your request big, Ahaz. Ask for a miracle, and I'll give it to you. Even ask for something bigger than just escape from this crisis. Have you ever wished God would give you this sort of a blank check? How would you, how would you respond if God extended this offer to you? How does Ahaz respond? Verse 12 He rejects God's offer. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So he didn't ask for anything. He he turned down the offer of a lifetime. Ahaz even puts on an air of humility by saying, I'll not test the Lord. Quoting Deuteronomy there. But that's a bad response. It's a bad use of scripture. When God tells you to ask him for something big, your response every time should, take, should be to take him up on it. But Ahaz doesn't want to put God to the test. Ironically, though, that's exactly what he's doing, is he's putting God to the test. He, he's exasperating God. He's making God weary, Isaiah says in verse 13. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Now, it's not that Ahaz has a problem asking for help in general. He regularly sought the help of the other gods. He he, he offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. Ahaz only had a problem asking 
for help from the one true God. Ahaz was okay with putting his trust in just about anything other than the Lord. King Ahaz had even humbled himself before Tiglath-Pileser III, the world emperor, and asked him for help in this jam. But Ahaz would not humble himself before the Lord and ask him for help. Ahaz was prepared to ask for help from anyone and anything except for the one who could actually help him. And why was Ahaz unable to ask God for help? Why couldn't he do it? Why couldn't he pull the trigger? Because his soul was full of pride and empty of faith. That's why he couldn't talk to God. It was full of pride and empty of faith. The only faith Ahaz ever had was his faith in himself and maybe his army and certainly his allies, definitely the foreign gods that he loved so much. Ahaz couldn't pray to God because Ahaz didn't know God. People who don't know God don't talk to God. People who don't talk to God don't know God. Now, before we get down on Ahaz too much, though, we need to remember that the truth of the matter is that God has offered you an even, he's made you an even greater offer than he made King Ahaz. Jesus says to you in Matthew 21, 22, and all things, whatever you ask for in prayer, you will receive if you have faith, trust. Mark eleven twenty four. whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and, it and it will be yours. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that you have before Jesus. If you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. God didn't offer Ahaz anything that he hasn't offered you, actually. In fact, God has offered you a whole lot more He has a whole lot more in store for you than he did for King Ahaz. There's more for the asking in your situation than there was in Ahaz's. I was talking to someone not too long ago who has experienced more loss, more suffering, more heartache than than most of us in this room. But at the end of a long conversation, this person testified to me that God always hears and answers all of our prayers. It was, a, it was a breathtaking comment for me, particularly in that situation. It came not from a person who had lived a charmed life and gotten everything that she wanted, but from a person who knows God intimately, has known God intimately for a long time, a person who has wrestled long and hard with God in prayer, and a person who regularly puts God to the test with astonishing results that she can testify about. Ahaz should have put God to the test, and so should you. Ahaz wearied 
God by not putting him to the test in prayer. Make sure you are not wearying God by failing to put him to the test in prayer. John 15, 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That person I was talking about believed those as straightforward promises. Isaiah 7, 14 records one of the most famous prophecies in the whole Bible. It gets read Certainly, uh, every Christmas. Since Ahaz refused to ask God for a miracle, the Lord was going to provide his own miraculous sign. He would provide the miracle that is deeper than Sheol and higher than heaven. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In effect, Isaiah is telling Ahaz in verses 14 and following through the rest of the chapter, you had your chance to ask for something great, something mighty, a supernatural sign, but you lost it. Now the Lord himself is going to choose the sign. He's going to cause a virgin to bear a son who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. However, this sign child He's not going to benefit you, Ahaz. No, Emmanuel will come long after I have judged you, long after I have judged Judah because of your sins. He'll come long after you're dead. Now, there's a lot of debate on the interpretation of this prophecy. Some say, well, yeah, it points to Christ, but it had a fulfillment in that day that we can point to now I don't think so uh, at all the prophecy inherent to the prophecy is a sign a miraculous sign we could call it that is deeper than Sheol higher than heaven something great and nothing happened in Isaiah's day in Ahaz's day and Isaiah's day that can in any way be considered a preliminary fulfillment of this passage No, what's happening here is that God, because Ahaz didn't take him up on his offer, God is judging him by giving the salvation sign after the time of judgment. In fact, many, many years of judgment against the house of David. And the rest of Isaiah 7 describes God's judgment against Ahaz. Emmanuel would not come. For another seven centuries, but God's judgment against Ahaz and Judah would begin almost immediately. They're in the eighth century. And the first wave of judgment, not the last wave for sure, the first wave of judgment against Ahaz would come by the hand of none other than Assyria. Ahaz, remember, had asked Assyria to come and deliver him from these two tiny kingdoms. And God makes it plain in verses 17 to 25 that Assyria, Ahaz's would-be savior, indeed would come, but not to save Ahaz. Look at what the Lord tells Ahaz in verse 17. The Lord will bring the king of Ahaz upon you 
and upon your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And then the rest of the passage just goes on to list how devastating this will be when Assyria comes. Ahaz had put his trust in Assyria, and now Assyria was about to destroy both him and his people. The lesson here is that whatever you trust in other than the Lord will totally destroy you in the end. Whatever you are putting your trust in, finding your satisfaction in other than the Lord will totally destroy you in the end. Verses 18 and 19 describe the Assyrian troops swarming into the land like flies and bees, which God summons by whistling for them. Verse 20 describes the king of Assyria as a razor coming to shave the hair from the bodies of the faithless people of Judah. This is a sign of total humiliation. The final result in verses 23 to 25 is that the land is is completely decimated by the Assyrian army. Each one of those last three verses, you may have noticed as I read it and paused, each one of those last three verses mentions briars and thorns. The curse, utter destruction. And so verses 17 spell it out plainly that whatever you trust in other than the Lord will totally destroy you in the end. But here's the thing, it won't just destroy you. You may tell yourself that, it's just gonna destroy me. But that's another lie from the pit of hell. It destroys Everyone around you as well. Everyone connected to you. Ahaz's faithfulness brought about God's judgment on him and on his people. And that's what sin does. It destroys you and your people. Sin takes down you and the people connected to you. Over 700 years later, God fulfilled Isaiah seven fourteen. For the first time in my interpretation. And he fulfilled it perfectly. In the town of Bethlehem, Emmanuel was born to a virgin named Mary. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 says. And when God became flesh, he became Emmanuel, God with us. That's how he became God with us, taking our flesh. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children of Jesus share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus partook of our flesh and blood. Why? The verse goes on to say, So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus is God with us, but he's also God for us. Jesus is God with you, which means that he is God for you. And if God is for you, Paul says, who can be against you? The story of Christmas means nothing if it doesn't mean that God is with us and for us, his people. Emmanuel came to an Israel and to a whole world that was under God's curse and judgment. What Isaiah prophesies about in the last part of Isaiah 7 came true, and it lasted a long time. 
And there was no way out until Emmanuel came. And he came to a world and to Israel under judgment, specifically to bear that judgment, to bear that curse, to take the judgment upon himself. He became a man so that he could put the sins of mankind on his back. Emmanuel's vocation, his, his calling, his mission, his purpose was to shoulder the weight of your life and the weight of your sins. Are you casting yourself on Emmanuel? Are you casting your sins on Emmanuel? God became one of us. He became Emmanuel for the very specific purpose of dying on a cross for your disgusting, for your embarrassing and wicked sins. Jesus was born of a virgin to deliver you from your enslavement to sin. God the Son left his glory in heaven to save you from whatever it is that you are leaning on, trusting in, finding satisfaction in, that's not God. He came to save you from the thing that can destroy you. The central lesson of Isaiah 7 is this one question. In what are you trusting? The various trials of your life, our life together, these various trials will reveal the answer. It will reveal the real you. Maybe 2020 has revealed that you're not trusting in God as you thought you once were. Maybe AD 2020 has exposed your faithlessness the way 735 BC exposed Ahaz's faithlessness. As you face what Paul calls the light and momentary afflictions in your life, your financial struggles, your health problems, your work stress, your relationship issues, your family drama. As you face these light afflictions, is your heart troubled? Are you faint-hearted like Ahaz? Are you shaking like trees in a strong wind as Ahaz was? Or are you firm in your faith in the rock, Jesus Christ? In Christ alone are the words of Isaiah 7 verse 9 fulfilled. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in your faith in Christ, you won't be firm at all. Whatever foundation you may see is an illusion. Whatever you trust in other than Christ will destroy you in the end. So what's destroying you? What, what has the potential to absolutely destroy you? you, to drag you all the way to hell. If you're not trusting in Christ, you're on the same path of destruction that Ahaz was on. And he thought he was good. He thought he was trusting in God. He, he was one of God's people. In fact, he was at the top of God's people. But he didn't even know God. He didn't even know the God of Israel, the God of Judah. 
Don't wait to find out on judgment day that you don't know God because the final day will be a lot more difficult for you even than the judgment that Ahaz had to endure in his life on the earth. Don't wait till judgment day to find out that you don't know him and that he doesn't know you. Romans 1.17 quotes Habakkuk 2 that I read earlier. The righteous person will live by his faith. This, this faith must be in Christ alone. And it must be living, obedient, active faith. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And he's the only one who can save you from your sins. And he saves everyone who walks with him in holiness He saves no one who does not walk with him in holiness. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for sending the Messiah, the promised son, the child of the virgin. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us from the grip of sin, the grip of the devil, the grip of hell. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking on our flesh and our blood, becoming one of us to save us. Help us to live in in the light of this gospel, especially during this Christmas season when there are so many distractions from the true meaning of the incarnation of God. Help us for Jesus' sake. Amen.